Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. If the idea of growing cool season vegetables makes you yawn, well, we're going to wake you up today with some interesting, unusual, colorful, and tasty varieties of fall and winter vegetables that you may just not know about, and they're worth a try. Unusual radishes and beets, colorful lettuce and cabbage varieties, different, easy-to-grow broccoli-like plants, and tasty, cool-season flowers that should be a part of your edible garden. We talk about those with local nursery manager Quentin Young. He's famous for stocking his nursery shelves with unusual edibles. Plus, we'll attempt to stave off a pest that may want to munch on those goodies, snails and slugs. Our favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, has some tips. It's episode 60 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Here on the Garden Basics Podcast, we like to expand your horizons a little bit. And there are a lot of great tasting cool season vegetables that perhaps you may want to try in your own backyard. These might be vegetables that may be rather hard to find at a supermarket. You might find them maybe at upscale restaurants, but when's the last time you were in an upscale restaurant, huh? And for that matter, they might even be kind of rare at farmer's markets, but yet these could be available at a nursery near you. We're talking with Quentin Young. He manages Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery in Sacramento, and their nursery is famous for bringing in the unusual varieties for people to try in USDA Zone 9. And of the cool season vegetables that you brought in this year, Q, what are the popular ones that are flying off the uh, shelves? Um, I think a lot of the kales are very popular. Um, A lot of the leafy greens, the salad mixes, because they're very easy to grow. They don't require a lot of root space. Um, Some of the more unusual broccolis and cauliflowers, unusual Asian greens. Um, Fava beans actually are pretty popular. I like to grow them because I hate spending the money um, that you have to pay to buy the whole pod um, at the stores. So they're really easy to grow and they're really easy to shell. Um, So it's a great money saver that way. Um, Onions, garlic, uh, leeks, all of those are doing really well this year. All right, let's talk about uh, fava beans since you brought it up. I know it and we've talked about it on this program as being a great cover crop but it produces a very edible crop of beans, doesn't it? Yeah, beans, and then you and I talked about the past about eating the um, the tender greens as well. But yeah, they're very easy to grow, really interesting flower, really interesting to watch the flower attract beneficials. You'll sometimes get some aphids on the fava beans, but I don't mind them because it also brings in the ladybugs in the winter, but they're very easy to grow. You basically just plant them and they germinate within about two, three weeks. Soaked mine overnight, I think, but they popped up really quickly. Fava beans, I think, is a great crop to get your kids interested for the little ones because it's such a big bean that they could easily plant. A big bean, easy to plant, also very easy to pick, easy to find. I sort of grow mine 
um, through my tomato cages to give them a little bit of support. Um, and, I, and I do the same with a lot of my, um, I'm always trying different kinds of snap peas. Um, so I also grow those through my tomato cages as well. And what little kid, and for that matter, what little gardener doesn't like dandelions? I think we've talked on this program about the benefits of actually having dandelions in your lawn, how it uh, helps out the soil and helps water percolate through through its extensive root system. Of course, everybody loves to blow off the flower head. But dandelion greens, they're a rather tasty treat, aren't they? They are, and actually, um, there's uh, they're used a lot, um, like in Italian cooking. There's you know there's that kind of section of bitter greens like dandelion greens, endive, chicory. Um, but the dandelion dandelion greens um, that we carry at the nursery, um, they're very decorative. They're not your kind of flat rosette on the ground. They're very upright. They have a very um, distinctive serrated leaf um, with a really pretty red rib, almost like a chard. Um, they're very productive. Mine got about a foot tall. It was quite a big bunch to basically just grab and cut. I cut them about an inch above the ground, and they basically re-sprouted again. But really easy to grow and very easy to grow. I'm growing some in containers this year. Can you eat them raw, or should they be cooked? Uh, you could eat them raw, um, small. Um, as they get bigger, they're a little bit tougher, and they do um, hold up to like stir-frying or sautéing or putting in soups. All right. And they're available at, at, at nurseries as plants or as seed? Uh, the, the nursery, we carry it as a plant. I'm sure you could find them online as a seed. Uh, we also carry um, uh, arugula and radicchio as well. So radicchio, endive, those chicories, we often will have them as seeds. And like most of the leafy greens, they germinate uh, fairly quickly. But that's a nice range of other tastes if you like to try them in your salads and some of them actually hold up well to cooking and for people who haven't perused the lettuce aisle lately at their favorite local nursery the salanova line of uh, lettuce greens is very popular and i've grown it and i can see why it's popular it's easy to grow and lasts a long time yeah and very productive and and very um a really interesting range of colors and textures of those reds and greens and kind of you know flat leaf ruffle leaf um, but very, uh, you know, really nice look. They would do well in containers as well. And don't forget to throw in if you want to, um, you know, some decorative pansies or violas or calendula, because those also have edible flowers like nasturtiums. And those are things that you might not be able to find in the store um, because you're, you know, obviously if you're growing them yourselves, you control um, whether you use chemicals or not use chemicals, but they're a great way to add some interest to salads, um, throw in some flowers. Uh, Calendula is a great, great flower for salads. It's basically called a winter marigold. Um, adds a nice either yellow or orange color, as well as nasturtium flowers and the nasturtium leaves. Um, it's a really kind of nice peppery green. And then you've got your pansies and violas as well. Exactly. Colorful and tasty to boot. Let's talk about some uh, root crops because they can be grown in a wide variety of climates. And there are some that you may not find in the supermarket, like a watermelon radish or an icicle radish. 
So yeah, the watermelon radishes are really distinctive. They have sort of a chartreuse, whitish green outside. You cut into them and almost like a little miniature watermelon, they have a really distinct pink center. Um, and the, to me, they're fairly mild, but they're very decorative. You see them used a lot in, in um, kind of like on salads as a sort of a side dish. I'm growing um, a white icicle radish this year. They germinated really quickly. I think they were ready in about 45 days. Um, I picked them when they were up about um, finger length and finger width and um, I really like them they were a spicy radish I'm not sure if the summer heat had anything to do with them when I sowed the seeds um, but those are two really distinct um, radishes that you may not see in the store as well as the French um, breakfast radishes those are also unique then also the really hot black Spanish radish, um, which are harder to find. And that's another nice one if you like a hot radish. Wow. The black Spanish radish. I guess you could uh, serve it with your leftover jalapenos. Yeah. I mean, if you like them hot, there you go. As well as the daikon radish. And daikons are very easy to grow. You'll often see those in your cover crop mixes. But a daikon radish, um, an, another really easy root crop, though it might be a little bit longer before you harvest them. I think what a lot of people don't realize when it comes to root crops is that some of the greens of the root crops are edible, like uh, for beets. Yeah, beet greens, radish greens, and there's there's um, a couple of beet varieties that are grown primarily just for the greens. And if you grow them um, for the actual beet, um, save the greens. You can use those as well. There's quite a few different recipes for how to um, prepare beet greens, and there's quite a few different recipes for um, radish greens as well. At the nursery, we'll often have... Um, uh, your traditional purple beet, your orange beets, and then we have, um, if I'm not mistaken, last week at least we had some white beets, which are a little bit sweeter, um, but there's quite a few different varieties of beets as well. Tell us about the Chioga beet. Chioga beets are really pretty. It looks like a bullseye when you cut into it. Um, one of those heirloom Italian varieties, and that's another one that would probably be hard to find in the store. Another crop that people may not be too familiar with uh, would be some of the Chinese cabbages or Chinese kales. Yeah, so the, there's quite a few, um, you know, people are familiar with, let's say, Napa cabbage, which is a little bit different than the European traditional large head cabbage. So you've got your Chinese cabbages, and then you'll kind of, um, you can learn or, you know, figure out how you want to grow things like um, bok choy or tat soy or the Shanghai choy. Those are all different sort of sizes and shapes. And then you get into um, like the Chinese broccoli um, that has that sort of larger stem with no florets. It's pretty much a stem and a leaf. Um, and then there's the gailon that has more sort of a purple color to it. Um, often served with the um, unopened or slightly opened flower buds. And then you've got some of the Japanese greens. So there's quite a range of those that you can grow basically, again, all winter long. Since you brought up the subject of broccoli, let's talk about some unusual broccoli varieties. I know one that people are starting to talk about a lot is broccolini. Broccolini, um, sometimes it's called um, asparabroc. It just really depends. Um, it's a little bit uh different than broccoli rob um so they're two different plants but they're both prepared in similar ways you know you can saute them that sort of thing the broccolini has a, a distinctive soft stem that um often for some people reminds them of of an asparagus spear um the broccoli rob is a little bit more bitter um it, it has more of the the turnip i i 
background in its leaves, but both of those, again, leafy greens that you would um, harvest, uh, and you could also eat the undeveloped flower buds, mm. unopened flower buds. And what about sprouting broccoli? What's its story? The sprouting broccoli, so most people are familiar with like the large head, like Marathon or Arcadia, Green Magic, those have sort of a large the typical, what I would say, grocery store broccoli um, that you're going to be waiting some time for that flower head to develop. The sprouting broccolis, um, there's some Italian varieties. I think um, De, De Seccio is one. There's uh, English purple, and they do a lot of little side shoots. And so you pick those instead of waiting for that large flower head to develop. And there's some cauliflower varieties like that as well. Plenty out there for the cool season garden, things that you may not be familiar with, things that would be a taste treat for your family. Give them a try. Quentin Young is the manager of Fair Oaks Boulevard Nursery in Sacramento, a purveyor of the unusual for his clientele. Quentin, thanks for uh, filling our plate up with cool season vegetables. Thanks for having me on, Fred. We're glad to have Smart Pots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. Smart Pots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And Smart Pots clicks all those boxes. They're durable, they're reusable. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com Fred. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next Smart Pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We're now in the season of cool season gardening. All the vegetables that are going in, nurseries are reporting big sales, sales bigger than ever of crops that do well in the fall and the winter in milder areas. Salad greens, peas, broccoli, cauliflower, fava beans, cabbage, chard, spinach, root crops, all sorts of other greens, too, like kale, collards, mustard, the Chinese cabbages, things like that there. What's a gardener to do because pests never sleep? So we bring in our favorite pest eradicator, retired horticulture professor Debbie Flower. And Debbie, let's talk about the, the winter pests of cool season vegetables. And I would think that if there is one critter that terrorizes gardens 12 months a year, especially here in California, it's snails and slugs. Yeah, that's certainly true. And it's going to get worse if when our first rains come. All right. So for snail control, I almost want to go around and just tear out low-lying leafy greens of, uh, of ornamentals like virginia and things like that where they tend to hide. Yeah, slugs and snails we don't see if we check our gardens during the, the daytime hours because they t typically come out at night. We don't see unless we're actually looking for them. And to look for them, you have to know where to look. And that's the plants that uh, like water and or trap water. Uh, the the Burginia likes shade and, and moist places. It's I watched a patch on one of the college campuses for many years, and it was at the edge of a building where the downspout came, and the building created shade, 
the, the plant would grow right out to the edge of that shade, but not go a, a step beyond it. So they really need shade. So that creates nice, moist, cool conditions. And that's where slugs and snails hide during the day. They're there. They're just in their nice, cool, moist place. They're, they're actually related to clams and, and oysters, and they need a moisture, a moist place to stay. If they come out during the day, they would just dry up and die. So we need to go to the places where they would hide and do some control there. You mentioned uh, the Burginia, the other plant that is almost a slug and snail uh, hotel is Agapanthus. Mm. Agapanthus only grows in warmer parts of the U.S. We have a lot of it in California. It's almost, uh, it's, it's a very tough plant. It's used a lot in public landscapes like gas stations, places like that. Very pretty flowers. But when, <laughs> if you've ever handled one to, let's say, divide it, it is full of slugs and snails. So that would be another place to look to control slugs and snails. Another place is the uh, drain holes in any container plants. They can get into those drain holes and spend the day in there and then come out or up onto the, your containerized plant and chew on it uh, during the, the nighttime when they do come out. Underneath, if you have pots on the ground or pots in, in saucers on the ground, lift those saucers and I'll bet you'll find them under there. So any place that's shady and moist, so that's the first thing. Find out where they are. The worry-free or sluggo brands are iron phosphate baits and realize it's a bait. They're going to come to it. So in my raised bed, I don't put it around the plants. I put it around the periphery of the raised bed itself because during the day there, they're probably hiding between the wood that's hold it, that's making the sides of the raised bed and the soil where the moisture is and the shade is. And so when they come up from there to go start munching in the garden, the first thing they run into is the bait. You can put it into a burgenia bed or into a bed of uh, agapanthus, but they, it's not recommended that it be on the leaves. So probably right around the plant. And so the first thing they encounter as they leave that plant is a, a bunch of the worry-free or the uh, iron phosphate baits. Read the label. You'll be surprised how little bait it takes. I don't have the numbers on the t off the top of my head, but it's something like a tablespoon per 100 square feet. So in a 10 by 10 bed, all you need is a tablespoon of the bait. And realize you're not going to see them disappear. All you're going to see is a lack of damage from slugs and snails. They don't uh, go into that. The older baits, which are very toxic to pets, so I no longer use them. The older baits left when they killed the slug and the snail, they left a slime trail all over the garden. And it was somewhat satisfying, I have to admit, to go out and realize that they died last night. But with the worry-free, the iron phosphate, the sluggo, they, you don't see that. They just crawl away and die. So all you see is the, the reduction in damage. And so if you really want to check, check if you have them and check if, if you don't have them. You need to go outside at night with a flashlight. When it's moist, so maybe after your irrigation ran that day previous and shady, which at night it is, and go out with a flashlight and check your uh, leafy greens under them. Lift the, up those leaves and look underneath them. Uh, they will like to feed in a place like that to see if you have slugs and snails. 
Of course, it's very important to positively identify the pest before you start applying any sort of pesticide. And why waste your money on iron phosphate if it's actually something else? So how does a gardener tell the difference in the damage done if they can't find them with a flashlight? Uh, it's, say, if it's a chewed leaf, is it is it the snail? Is it the slug? Is it a bird? Is it a cabbage looper? Yeah, that's a good point. The kind of hole that a slug or snail makes is they're what we call rasping eaters. They sort of scrape the surface of the leaf and ultimately make uh, get all the way through it. They do eat leaf pieces and that result in holes in the plant, but often the edge of that hole is ragged because they've rasped so far. Rasping is like sandpaper on a leaf or a cat's tongue, if you've ever felt a cat's tongue, a really rough tongue like that on a leaf. They don't have teeth. They can't bite. They just sort of worry it away until they've got this ragged hole. So that's one, The rag, whether it's a ragged hole. Uh, other things will leave other signs, like the cabbage worm will leave eggs, would be one thing. Mm-hmm. And those would probably be on the back. Typically, they're on the back of the leaf and on the margins. So, And they're often the color of the leaf. So you really have to look carefully for those. But when they become, after they've hatched and started eating, then you start to see their poop, which is like black, almost cigarette ash, but black and not as, not that big. First, it'll be very small and then it'll get bigger and bigger. And again, look at the back of the leaf just to find the those who are munching away. And you'll probably see the adults. There are a couple of types of cabbage worms, cabbage looper. One is a, they're, they're small moths or butterflies. One is white with a black dot on each wing, and the other one is sort of nondescript, gray, tan, with a few stripes. But if you see those adults, the adults will be out during the day. They're looking for a place for to uh, food that they like so that they can lay their eggs on there and their babies can be well-fed. So you're going to look for that during the day. So you've got to look for the actual pest. Birds, of course, you'll see during the day. The other is squirrels. Squirrels can really ravage a winter garden because they like the nice, soft food. So if you're unsure if you're having squirrels or birds, you might want to put a, a barrier over the top of the plants. Put a cage of some sort. It can be homemade so that they don't have a place, a way to get in and eat it. So uh, I have a friend who's just, just put chicken wire over the top of her raised bed. Didn't even hold it down with anything. Just put the chicken wire there and that stopped the squirrels from eating. So trying uh, some of your manual controls before you decide you've got slugs and snails might give you some information. Well, not only that, but uh, you could take it one step further and uh, cover your cool season vegetable garden with a row cover, uh, even a frost cloth, a lightweight frost cloth. Not only are you going to give it a few degrees of protection, but it's also going to keep out the moths. It'll may keep out the snails and slugs, and it may dissuade the uh, squirrels. Right. Yes. A barrier. That's always helpful. Barriers are good. Another old trick you could try, too, is to uh, spread some kitchen flour beneath the affected plant. If you see that something's chewing on one plant in a row and you're wondering, why are they choosing that plant? Maybe before you go to bed, take some kitchen flour, spread it in a circle around the outside of that plant and maybe make it about eight inches or so wide and then the following morning, see if you see any trails or paw prints or, or whatever in that flower. Yes, good idea. 
snails feed at night and the cabbage worms will be present at night and feed at night. Squirrels and, and birds go to bed. So depends how vigilant you are, whether you know when, when that eating is occurring, when that damage is occurring to your plants. But that's another thing to take into consideration. And for cabbage loopers, they would be more affected by a stomach poison like BT or spinosad. Right. Yes. Controlling cabbage worms isn't easy. No, it isn't easy. The exclusion, the barrier, is probably your best bet. And if you're going to use BT, you, you need to put it on when the before really before you see the damage, because it only works on the baby babies. Cabbage worm goes looper and worm go through complete metamorphosis, meaning the adult lays the egg, the egg hatches, and it's a it's a caterpillar, very small to begin with, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it eats more and more and more. And that's when it's very tiny, that's when the BT works the best. When it gets bigger and bigger, it, it takes too much BT to kill them. Uh, at that point, you're hand-picking them because you can see them. Their poop is really large. You, you, you see the poop down below, you look up. That's where they're going to be. If I were to describe the color of a cabbage worm, I would say, yeah, it's about the same shade of green as lettuce. Yes, they seem to become the color of whatever they eat, don't they? Yes, yes. Well, we've only scratched the surface here of the cool season pests that may be in your garden. I think we will continue this series with more in the weeks ahead. Is that okay with you? Oh, sounds like a great plan. Once again, good advice from retired horticulture professor Debbie Flower. Debbie, thanks for uh, helping us uh, kill. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. And you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. We have links to all our social media outlets, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, a link to the FarmerFred.com website. That's where you can find out more information about the radio shows. Y you remember radio, right? Now, if the place where you access the podcast doesn't have that information, you can find it all at our home podcaster, Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout.com. Just look for the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. The Garden Basics podcast is going to a winter schedule, maybe just like your favorite local nursery. November through January, Garden Basics will come out once a week on Fridays. Then as the weather warms back up in February, we'll return to our twice a week schedule. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate that you've included us in your garden life.